So let's get started. Again, good to see all of you. There's a handful of people here in this room, and I have no idea how many are also uh, watching by Zoom, but we're going to get started. We are in, um, as you all know, in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 9. Uh, I don't know, uh, Joe, did last week, uh, Rob taped it, did that, that work? I have it. And we're able to uh, post that. And so I completely forgot until just now. Okay. All right. But I have it. Okay, we're good. Okay. Well, then we're going to assume that if you, there were only about three people last week that would have heard it or in the room, but uh, the rest of you, if you want to listen to last week, you'll have to get on the uh, post that's on the website for that. But we're going to pick up on verse 42 of chapter 9. Um just to remind you a little bit, we are in that very critical point in Jesus' public ministry where the resistance to Jesus is mounting. The resistance is mounting among the spiritual leadership. He's still in Galilee. He's still in the north. And remember the geography of the eastern Mediterranean. Galilee is in the north. Samaria is in the center. And Judea is in the south. So Jesus is still in Galilee. He is soon going to start making his way to Jerusalem. But he has been talking in the previous session last week. As he is telling the disciples, the 12, that he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed. He's going to be uh, risen from the dead. And they're not getting it. They're having trouble processing it. And the very next paragraph, they start debating on themselves, who's the greatest? And because they're debating who's the greatest among them, they're obviously not getting the primary point that Jesus is making. And so what Jesus does, and we again covered this last week in the previous paragraph, he uses this as a teachable moment. And he, in effect, says, summarize it, greatness in my kingdom is marked by humility. And so the least among you is the greatest. And then he uh is facing another situation where someone was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but he wasn't one of the 12, this person who's doing these miracles. And the disciples come to Jesus uh, and just say, hey, we got to stop this guy. He's not one of us. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You're, you're either with me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. And this guy's with us because he's doing the work just because he doesn't isn't a part of our, I'll use a term we kind of use today, part of our clique doesn't mean he isn't doing God's work. And so Jesus stresses that this isn't some exclusive community. If you belong to me, you will do the work I want you to do. These guys are doing God's work. And so then Jesus continues this teachable moment. And that's where I want to pick up today. And in a very real sense, verse 42 of chapter 9 is kind of a transitional verse. Because Jesus is going to begin to hammer away again at discipleship. Look at verse 42. I read from the ESV translation. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, the little ones refers to the children that he used as an example in the paragraph when he was dealing with the disciples crazy. Who's the greatest among us? And Jesus says, greatness is marked by humility. And he puts a little child on his lap and says, coming to me as a little child is what it's all about. So Jesus, when he uses the phrase little ones here in verse 41, he is referring to children, but he's referring to all 
who come to faith in Christ and who are just new believers, fresh new believers, if you cause one of these to sin, who believe in me to sin, he's warning against causing people who come to Christ to stumble, to disbelieve. From God's perspective, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, this millstone, it's nicknamed in the ancient world a donkey millstone. It's about the size of this round table right here. If you ever go to Israel, um, if you were to go with me, there are several places where I would show you these millstones where they would use to grind the the olive, to get the olive oil out. And the olive oil runs into a big vat and all that stuff. These things are massive. I can't, I have no idea how heavy they are. So Jesus is saying it would be better if one of these donkey millstones, these huge millstones, would be placed around your neck and thrown. So what's Jesus saying? What, what, is he, what, is he really, what is he really stressing here? Listen. Your responsibility to young believers, your responsibility to little children, they both would fit that little phrase, little ones, is profoundly important. You're to help nurture them, not cause them to stumble. If you, if you are leading them down the path of, of disbelief, or leading them down the path to stumble and sin, God's going to hold you accountable. And so it's a severe hyperbole. It's exaggerated language. But he's saying, in God's eyes, this is very serious business. So then, in verse 42, don't misunderstand what Christ is doing here. In verse 42, Jesus again begins to talk about discipleship begins to talk about following Jesus. He's not talking about how you are saved. He's not talking about how you are justified. He's talking about the life of following me is a life of radical, decisive action against sin. Following me as my disciple is you are facing sin for what it really is, and you are taking radical action to deal with it. Now, you know, I can only look at a few of you in the room, but even those of you who are listening online, it, it is extremely important that you understand that Christ is talking about discipleship. He's not talking about salvation. This isn't how you're saved. This is you make the decision to become a Christ follower. You put your faith in him. Then this is what he now expects you to deal, deal with. Radically deal with sin. So, he looks at a series of, you and I would probably, almost bizarre situations. But the issue is, take the radical action. So look at verse 43. There are a series of these. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands than go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and thrown into hell. And so he uses three really almost unimaginable situations 
It's hyperbolic language. It's the language of exaggeration. He is not saying, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, rip your eye out. He's saying, with your hands, you can sin, take radical action. With your feet, you can walk and go somewhere that causes you to sin. With your eyes, you can see things that cause lust and cause envy and cause jealousy. Deal with it. So what's the point Jesus is making? Take radical action to deal with sin in your life. You can't approach sin. If you are walking in loving obedience with me, you can't, ext- you can't deal with sin in a passive, I'll just sit in my rocking chair, okay, Jesus, make me holy. That's not how it works. And I'll say what I've said many times in this class. When you understand the difference between justification and sanctification, which I'm hoping you all do because I hammer away at that, justification is that event where you put your faith in Christ, you are declared holy, you're declared righteous, you're acquitted of your sin, then you begin that process of being conformed to the image of Christ. That's difficult. Because you're dealing with all your old habits and old patterns of sin, and Jesus is saying, I want you to get rid of these. That's what he's talking about here. And it's it's that process of sanctification. You you Paul writes about that in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your sanctification with fear and trembling, because God is at work within you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's it's the it's the action that we're to take in dealing with our sin. Sanctification is not passive. Sanctification is an activist pursuit of holiness. You must want that. That's why Jesus, or that's why Paul says in that passage in Philippians 2, God is at work within you both to will, he's changing your will. And that's an important thing to remember. I can remember when I came to know the Lord in 72, many, many times on, on my knees at my bed, just praying that the Lord would change my will toward a variety of things. And so what Jesus is saying here, again, I'll repeat it for about the fourth time. He's dealing with the radical call of discipleship. You take radical action against the sin. And so therefore, one of the results of this is you then begin to develop a strategy, a strategy for holiness in your life. What God is, as God presents these things to you, the old habits and old patterns. Okay, Jim, it's time to get rid of these. It's time to substitute these, these new patterns of holiness and righteousness. Okay, Lord, let's get to it. And what Jesus is saying is discipleship demands radical action. And this radical action is what keeps you from being led astray. Okay? It's not about salvation. It's about sanctification, about discipleship. Yeah. That was my question. You won't lose your salvation, but you will lose your growth and the and the conformity that you're seeking if you engage in these things that are sinful and sidetrack, sidetracking for your spiritual development. Right. That's right. That's right. And the longer... I'm going beyond what Christ is saying here, but this was very much in what Paul writes about. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more sensitive we are to these things, and the more our line, our will is falling in line with God's will, I I need to deal with this. I need to get rid of this in my life. And, uh, I mean, that's a very simple uh, 
this summary of what is difficult. I mean, uh, you, you get Paul's perspective on the process of sanctification in Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do, and I can't seem to do what I want to do. Woe is me. And, of course, then he answers and develops what, what, God, uh, what God wants us to do and, and so on in Romans 8. Then, uh, then I mean, following in, in Mark 9 here, then there is a verse <laughs> that has caused no small controversy. And it's just, it's a very difficult verse. And you try to think, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? In verse 48, uh, he's spoken about hell three times, where there's worm does not die and fire is not quenched. The, the, the worm is that internal torment, the, the, the fire is not quenched, that's the external torment. But then he adds this, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Got it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, wait a minute. I mean, up to, up to verse, up to verse 49, you, you sort of get what, what, what Jesus is saying and the, the depths of this importance of decisive action in dealing with sin. But then verse 49, you have three issues. Issue number one, who's everyone? Who's he talking about? Issue number two, what does he mean salted with fire? Salt and fire don't go together. That's mixing metaphors. Salted with fire. What in the world does that mean? And then thirdly is have salt in yourselves. <laughs> and so you read these, so this is one of those verses, ah, oh, it's too difficult, let's move on. Is that okay? Well, it's not okay. I'm not going to move on. I'll we try just to want to skip this, do we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those verses because this is only in Mark. It isn't Matthew, uh, Luke, or John. And so let's first of all settle the issue of everyone. Um, the everyone is everyone, but the everyone is broken into two groups those who have rejected Christ. Those who have rejected God's grace will undergo the judgment of hell. Those who have trusted Christ will undergo continually the purification of the sanctifying grace of God. And the purification of God's sanctifying grace is often understood as fire. Fire purifies. That's how you, as I understand the process, that's how you get the junk out of a piece of gold ore. You've got to heat it tremendously, and all the junk comes to the surface, and what's left is the pure ore, the pure gold. Same with silver, as I understand it. And so when Jesus says everyone, he's saying everyone is going to experience one of the two dimensions of the metaphor of fire. Those who have rejected my grace will experience the judgment of fire in hell. Those who have put their faith in me will experience the purifying, sanctifying grace 
which is often compared to the purifying fire. That's the only way this makes sense. Because again, fire, as a metaphor, fire is used in the Bible of those two possibilities, judgment or purification. And so the everyone can be everyone. But it's one of those two options it's depending on whether you've responded to me. And if you understand that you respond to me in faith, you become one of my children by faith in, in Jesus. Then you begin that process of sanctification. And that involves the purification by fire. Because that's why James says in James 1, 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And you say, well, I don't want, when I encounter various trials, I don't want to be responding with joy. Because we know this is how God transforms us. Okay, you got that? Yeah. Now, continuing, our second question. So everyone is salted with fire. I've explained the first two. Salt is good. Now let's just stop there for a minute. Salt, you're in the ancient world. When you and I hear salt in 2021, it, almost universally, you're thinking of that condiment you put on a thick Omaha steak. That's what you think of salt. It enhances flavor. Well, in the ancient world, they they may have thought about that, but most of the people that would think that way would have been the very wealthy, the, the top one, even less, some more than that, 0.5% of the population. Because most people, salt is very expensive. You couldn't afford that as a condiment that you put in your food. So for most people in the ancient world, salt was something that purified, something that 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 kept things from deteriorating. And so you would take a piece of meat and you'd pack it with salt. That's a purification. It's, it's, it's preventing that piece of meat from spoiling. Now, they didn't understand bacteria and all that you and I understand, but they knew this. If I pack it with salt, it's not going to deteriorate. I can eat it in a week. Same way with certain other things that could spoil quickly. So when Jesus says salt is good, the people who are hearing him in the first century are saying, yeah, it is good. It, it prevents things from deteriorating. It prevents things from spoiling. It, be, it prevents things from deteriorating. Oh, it is good. It was one of the reasons why the Roman Empire wanted Judea, because they had access to the, to the Sea of Salt. The Bible never calls it the Dead Sea, but it was the Sea of Salt, the Sea of Arabah. And so that, that they would understand, okay, got it. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And that's true, because over time, that salt that you packed in meat or around certain vegetables or things like that, it is gonna, it's going to deteriorate, and it's going to lose its, would be the right word, its power to preserve potency. over time. Potency, that's the word. Thank you, Glenn. It's going to lose its potency over time. And you can't restore it. <laughs> you can't put it in a chemical and restore it. It's done. That, that salt, is, is, it served its use. It's great. But th what they would usually do is throw it out in the street, which would be part of what they would tramp down into the street. So Jesus then says, okay, most people in the ancient world would have understood what he was saying when he uses salt is good, got it, understand what you're saying. So have salt in yourself. Have salt in yourselves. What you 
be salt. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth? You are the light of the world. Remember him saying that? Yes. He did, says that right after he goes through the Beatitudes, those eight character traits that he focuses on that passage in Matthew 5. So now, okay, now I'm starting to figure out what he's saying. Have salt in yourselves. I have said to you, you are the salt. You are my disciples. You are the salt of the earth. So have salt in yourself. Serve that purifying, that purifying, preserving function with others, with fellow believers, with unbelievers. Be salt. Be that in a society which purifies. Be that in society which preserves. Because if you have taken the radical action I talked about in verse 43 through 47, then you are functioning as that salt. You are not participating in the deterioration of society. You are participating in the preservation of society. So be salt in yourself, and the result will be shalom. The result will be peace with one another. Now you're beginning to see, in the context of this whole paragraph, you're beginning to see where Jesus is taking us, and, well, originally the 12, but where he's taking us as his disciples. If you're going to follow me, I want you to take radical action in dealing with your sin. And as you take radical action for dealing, dealing with your sin, you will see the purifying work of my grace in your life so that you will be my salt and the result will be shalom. And again, these are Hebrew words, but you know that term. You've heard that. The result will be peace with one another. This is one of the this is one of the key reasons why where the church is, I mean, the church is people, you know, not the building, but where the church is, there's the salt and light. Where the church is, there is that preservation, that purification, that potency of the power of Christ. And it prevents further deterioration. But as the, as the church declines, and as fewer and fewer people in a society know Christ, what's happening to the culture? It further deteriorates. And tragically, in my judgment, I mean, maybe you haven't reached that conclusion yet, but tragically, in my judgment, that's what's happening to America. And the church is losing its potency as the salt of the earth, as again, I'm using what's in Matthew 5 and also what's here. This is a powerful call. Let me rephrase it. It's a powerful understanding of why it is so important to be a disciple of Christ, because you're his salt. And be be salt in yourselves. And the result is shalom. But isn't a promise inherent in that statement that if we are the salt, and we haven't lost our savor, and we share that with others. That inherent in that is a promise that others are out there that will respond as we did uh -huh. to the call of Christ, uh -huh. and that we would be responsible, as the disciples are, for promulgating the Word of God and seeing souls come to Christ. That's the that's the key element of being His ambassador then fulfilling the Great Commission and all the other things.
things that go with it, but absolutely. Absolutely. So Everybody, it's it's going to work. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It will work as an inherent promise. So yeah. I think that's an encouragement to people who say, "Well, I don't maybe want to say anything to this guy, even though I know he's boss." Um, I shared that one time <laughs> with a boss, and he said, "I don't want to hear any of that." And I thought, "Gee, you're right to the harvest. Yeah. You are you are so profoundly against it that perhaps." You're aware of it, and you will receive it at some point. Some point. If I yeah. don't give up. Yep. Absolutely. He is. Absolutely. He's me. All right. Everybody else with me? Anybody online? That's what we always say. Anybody online have a question? No question. No questions. Thank you, Woody, for speaking for the group. <laughs> Miss seeing you here. But it's good to have you by being online. Let's. The good news is we can hear you well. Now, there's a very important geographical statement in verse one of chapter 10. And if you're really interested in geography stuff, you might want to look at your map on page seven in the packet. And it, it looks like this. And it's just, again, what I've often done just by waving my hands. But Jesus, in much of the Gospel of Mark, has been in Galilee. Galilee's up here in the north. And now what the text says in verse 1, and he left there, which means Capernaum, Galilee, and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So Mark doesn't explain it. He doesn't give any detail. He's just telling us Jesus is moving from Galilee to Judea. Now, really, what is going on here? <clears throat> Excuse me. What is going on here is he's headed to Jerusalem. Mark doesn't record. Jesus made three, possibly four, visits to Jerusalem over the Passover. And uh, Mark doesn't cover those. He's Remember how the, it's a docudrama, quick bang, bang, bang. Whereas Matthew and John are much more detailed, much more careful in giving an account of all Christ's trips into Judea. So all Mark is doing is, just want you to understand one thing, Jesus is on the move. That's all he's telling us. But this is really important because as he's heading to Judea, what he's really doing is he's heading to Jerusalem. We're getting to the point where we're going to soon be in Passion Week. Mark has a lot of material on that, but that's coming up. So Jesus is on the move. That's all he's telling us. And the crowds gather to him again. This is one of the intriguing things about Christ moving from Galilee to Judea, is crowds follow him. And those crowds, Matthew calls them multitudes, but those crowds move with Jesus down to Jerusalem. And part of the group of people that are welcoming and shouting and praising him on Palm Sunday are Galilean pilgrims. So that, that, there's a lot going on here that Mark doesn't deal with. But the crowds are gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Now, what Mark does not tell us where Jesus is. We don't know what town he's in yet. We don't, we don't know anything. We just know he's on the move. So he's somewhere between Galilee and Judea. He's on the move. And this is a crowd of people. And then verse 3, excuse me, verse 2, we see another one of these themes that Mark develops. Opposition to Jesus. There's growing opposition to Jesus. And what is fascinating here is 
it's all not always, but almost always that opposition is led by the Pharisees. And so here we see, and the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, now that's an infinitive of purpose. The Pharisees are not here by accident. They didn't just bump into Jesus. Wherever they are specifically, they're here for one purpose, to test him. Now, they're not going to give him a written test and ask him to fill it out. This is to trip him up. This is to embarrass him. This is to get, to get him to a situation where he humiliates himself and they can say, see, you people shouldn't be following him. Because remember, we talked about this in, oh, goodness me, weeks ago. But we talked about this before I, I took that two-week break to be with my kids. That, that decision has been made by the leadership. This guy's got to go. And so they're trying to build a case to get rid of Jesus. And, of course, that will all culminate in Jerusalem and all that. So the question they're going to ask Jesus in verse 2 is a well-thought-through question. Again, this isn't just on, you know, just, this just come into our mind, Jesus, what do you think? No, no, this is well thought through. They want Jesus to engage in the debate that was a hot debate of the first century in Judaism. It was a hot debate between, no, I don't have a board. Oh, I do have a board in here. Should I write on that board? Well, there are no markers. So I guess I can't. But I'll just tell you, the debate was between one rabbi named Shammai and another rabbi by the name of Hillel. Now, these two rabbis had, as was very typical, had lots and lots and lots and lots of followers. And Shammai said, a man cannot divorce his wife for any reason extremely strict understanding of the marriage code in Levitical law. Whereas Hillel said, a man can divorce his wife for a lot of reasons. Even if she burns his supper at night, he can divorce her. So this is a debate, a very strict, limited, rigid, whatever word you want to use, view of divorce and marriage on a very loose, very broad, almost for any reason, a man can divorce his wife in Judaism. And so they asked Jesus this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So let's paraphrase this. According to the Levitical Code, According to what Moses taught, according to what is in Deuteronomy, because all three of those spoke to this issue, can a man divorce his wife? It's so broad. They want Jesus to take sides. They want Jesus to get involved in this debate between the followers of Hillel and the followers of Shammai. One who says very loose, as I mentioned, Hillel, even if a, if a man's wife burns his supper at night, that's grounds for divorce. That's how loose his interpretation. Whereas Shammai said virtually no reason. So what does Jesus do? 
what did Moses say? Verse 3. What did Moses command you? That is so shrewd. He doesn't take him back to the creation ordinance. He doesn't take him to the Levitical code. He says, what does Moses say? Because the Pharisees, of all the groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the Zealots, the Pharisees were the ones that were singularly devoted to Moses. And so it's so, I mean, this, who's in control of this situation? The Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up or Jesus? Well, obviously the answer is Jesus. But it's so shrewd how he answers. He doesn't say, well, what's the creation of St. Genesis 2? He doesn't say that. What's Moses say? And so they respond, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, what are they talking about? They're referring to Deuteronomy 24, where Moses does, and remember Deuteronomy is the recapitulation of the law for the second generation of the Israelites as they're about to go into the promised land, because the first generation had, as you remember, died in the wilderness. Well, anyway, so they're referring to Deuteronomy 24, where Jesus, or excuse me, where Moses did talk about marriage and did talk about divorce. And Moses said, under certain circumstances, a divorce is legitimate. And Jesus said to them, so they answered correctly. He challenged them. What's Moses say? They answered him correctly. Then Jesus takes it and says, I'm in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, let me stop there for just a minute. So you have Deuteronomy 24, where Moses is talking to the children of Israel about the end of the promised land. And then you have Jesus saying, Moses did that as an act of God's grace because of your sin, the hardness of your heart. God permitted this. However, and this is what verse 6 is, this is not God's ideal. This is not God's desire. He permits it as an act of his grace, but this isn't his ideal. And then Christ says something. When he says, from the beginning of creation, what's he referring to? Genesis 2, the creation ordinance of God. God made them male and female. Why does Christ say that? Now, for you and me in 2021, this is really an important proclamation. This is a very important pronouncement from Jesus. In the creation ordinance of God, he created two streams of humanity, male and female. What's God's design? I'm creating two streams of human. By the way, that God created male and female is in Genesis 1.27, which is the clause that follows in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. So Jesus does not quote the first part of the verse. 
in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. He focuses on male and female, he created them. So the very first thing God says in Genesis 1 about being in God's image is that he very first thing he says in male and female created, they both share in my image. They're both equal in my image. But when God created humanity in two grand streams, he had a design for this. He had a purpose for this. Verse 7, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. So, oh, this, I mean, man, this is, this is absolutely radical for 2021. Because this is speaking to two primary ethical issues in 2021. Transgenderism and same-sex marriage. Both are, are really popular issues and really easy to talk to people about, right? There's no controversy, no difficulty with it. My goodness, if there's anything that's ripping this society apart, it's those two issues. Jesus Christ has just spoken to both of these issues right here. Now, in first century Judaism, what those two things I just mentioned were not issues. The Pharisees weren't struggling with transgenderism and how to deal with it. They weren't struggling with same-sex marriage. They were simply trying to trip Jesus up on the issue of divorce. So Jesus, his response is so masterful. God created human beings in his image. And being in his image means both men and women, male and female. He created his image bearers in two grand streams, a male stream and a female stream. And biologically and physiologically and emotionally and psychologically, that male stream and that female stream are totally different from one another. I mean, physiologically, you just study the two genders, male and female, they are so totally different in every single way. And by design, the male body is designed to fit with the female body by God's design. So he created the human race in these two great streams for a purpose. What's the purpose? He answers that in verse 7, for the purpose of marriage. His purpose and his design is the male and the female will join together in this institution I'm creating. It's the first institution God created of marriage. And my design is that these two totally different human beings, both equally in my image, as image bearers of God, that these two will come together. And what does he say? He's quoting from Genesis 2.24. The two become one. This profound, unbelievably profound proclamation. Where there were two, now there's one. Does that mean the male and the female lose all their identity, lose their idiosyncrasies? No, no, no. Lose their distinctive? No, no, no. It's just now they join together. And by the way, it's really the verb tense in the Hebrew that he's quoting here changes. The male leaves his mother, father, and mother. He's now consciously forming a new family unit that he holds like glue to his wife. And now the verb tense changes. And they now are in the process of becoming one. It's obviously sexual intercourse, but it's much, much more than that. I've been married to Peggy for 52 years. I'm sort of beginning to understand her. I'm beginning to understand her idiosyncrasy. But, you know, I've been through 
raising two kids with her. I've been through menopause with her. I've been through heart condition with her. I've been through her autoimmune disease. And she, she responds differently to things than I do. But that exactly. She is, in every sense of that precious word, my compliment. Because God's design is that the two becoming one, they will now serve God in their integrity together. They will be stewards of what God is together in integrity. They're better together than they are apart. That's God's design. And so Jesus, although he shrewdly asked them, what's Moses say? Then he explains why Moses said what he said in Deuteronomy 24 and takes them back to creation and says, here's God's design. And God's design is the best way to live because God designed everything with this in mind. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So if you are dealing with the issue of divorce, don't treat it flippantly like Hillel does, that this would be in the context of the first century. It is a very important institution that God created. It is rooted in his creation ordinance. It's rooted in being an image bearer of God. And it's an institution that is crucial to organize civilization in God's design. Don't take it lightly. In effect, that's what Christ is saying. So, again, without getting into the culture war stuff, but what Christ said here in verses 6 and 7 is deeply important for you and me in 2021. Because what, what organized civilization is doing in the United States of America, in Canada, in Western Europe, and in much of the world, is they are defying what God says here. They're willfully and intentionally turning their backs on what God is saying. Male and female, he created. No, he didn't. Don't tell me that. It is up to me, the gender I choose to adopt. Don't tell me God created it. I won't believe that. I reject that. God created male and female, two grand strangers, designed us to come together in a heterosexual monogamous union. Don't tell me that. I sovereignly can choose what I want to be. That is not submission to the creator's will. That's defiance of the creator's will. But God is such a God of grace, common grace, that he will then let organized civilization live with the consequences of those choices. Are you seeing positive consequences out of some of this? It's hard for me to see a lot of positive consequences. And I, I, I want to stop there because I don't want to get any, into any more of this culture stuff right now. But what Christ is saying here is extremely relevant for you and me today. But it's also, and I'm sure you're not that naive to misunderstand that, but it's also very, makes you and me very, very unpopular. We're outliers now. We're outliers in the civilization. And it's another illustration that... Biblical Christianity is countercultural. The culture is going one way. Biblical Christianity is going the other way. 
And now that you and I are living in that kind of a culture, you and I are also going to have to live potentially with the consequences of that. If the Lord does not send a revival in American civilization, there is a, there is a growing hostility toward biblical Christianity. For much of, for much of the 20th century, particularly the last half of the 20th century, culture was sort of neutral when it came to Christianity. It's not neutral anymore. It's antagonistic to Christianity, biblical, genuine biblical Christianity. What we just studied, there's not a neutrality or a pattern. Okay, it, it's hostility. I absolutely reject what Jesus just said, is what the culture is saying. I absolutely reject what he is contending here. I don't want anything to do with this, is what the culture is saying. And so for you and me who teach this, or at least I teach it, for you and me who believe this, to believe it and to teach it means you are now part of a cult, countercultural community. So how are we in the world but another of the world when the world is going in such the opposite direction? That's the tension of living in the 21st century. We still are to be what Christ says in John 17, 13 through 18. We're to be in the world but not of the world. But that tension is growing. All right? It's masterful, isn't it? I hope you got that. It's masterful how Jesus deals with us. It is absolutely masterful. He is in such control of this situation. He knows they're trying to trip him up, and they ask him this broad question. He says, okay, what's Moses say? And they answer correctly. He says, okay, I want to explain to you. Moses did that because of the hardness of your heart. That's not God's ideal. So I want to take you back to the creation of God. I want to take you back to the design. Here's how God designed it. It's pretty hard to refute that coming from the mouth of Jesus. But if you reject his authority and reject the authority of his word, that's what our culture is doing. They're rejecting it. Objectly, they're rejecting it. Jim, when we live in this world, this isn't a surprise to God. He knew that we would be in this world at this time. And he does provide an answer, does he not, and courage and strength yep. to witness in this present day. And that his word does not return void. And the people, it will prick their ears. And some will come to Christ because of it. And we have to believe and be faithful. But as has been the case, I just wrote a paper on martyrdom. Uh, in the early church. But we also are going to have to face the possibility that it's going to more and more cost to stand for Jesus. It really is. Because as this society abjectly turns against what Christ has said, those of us who believe what Christ has said, we are the outliers. I'm old, but I think my children, and definitely my grandchildren, are going to face a very different world than I faced. And that it's hard, it's hard to think that way, but then you have to quickly remember who's in control of all this and what's our destiny? Where are we headed? What is all this going to mean? And then of course you keep the blessed hope is Jesus keeping his promises that he made to us. All right. I, I didn't want to depress you guys. <laughs> But at the same time, we have to come to terms. What Christ is saying here is absolutely radical. And, you know, 
I grew up when reading this. It was, yeah, that's really true. Yep. That's really good, Jesus. You know, I mean, because everybody around you believed it. Everybody agreed with it. The society basically adhered to it. Now I'm 74 years old and nobody adheres to it. That, that's not true. But, I mean, it's more and more and more. There's, oh, my goodness. And there's, an, there's a decisive, intentional rejection. So then Jesus, okay, then he cuts to the bottom line. And in the house of his disciples, ask him again about this man. And he said to them, so Jesus does not say this publicly. He says this to the disciples. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus, well, really, where any part, gives the counsel that a woman can divorce her husband. That's really interesting. Now, uh, I know, I'm I'm thinking what I wanted to do now, I can't do. So what I want to do is I don't want to just leave verse 10, 11, and 12 hanging. Because we need to go to Matthew chapter 19, and we need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 next week. Because Jesus, excuse me, well, yes, Jesus and Paul talk about two exceptions to this edict. And I want to talk about those to round it out in terms of New Testament teaching. So I will develop this a little bit next week. So I'm going to have to stop and leave uh, quickly. So, okay, so I'm going to pray. Is everybody with me? Yeah. All right. Yes. Father, we're grateful for the New Testament. We're grateful for the Gospel of Mark. We're grateful for the Word of God. We're grateful for the clarity of the Word of God on such difficult, wrenching cultural issues that we see around us. Um, I know some in this room have really been wrestling with these issues in, in, uh, in, in, in their place of, of, of work where these challenges are uh, wrenching and difficult, riveting. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your provision. We just ask your watch care over all of us as we try to represent you as we studied just a little bit ago as your salt, as your light in, in a culture that is in, with growing fervor, uh, rejecting blatantly your moral law, rejecting blatantly your design. And, Lord, tragically, they and the culture is going to have to live with the consequences of this. So, Lord, we pray for your grace. We pray that in the midst of so much cultural upheaval and personal upheaval, personal dysfunction, people will reach out to Jesus Christ and accept him as their Savior and Lord. We we pray that because it is often when people hit bottom that they're most vulnerable, most open to the gospel. So we pray that we, again, may be your salt and light representing you. Be with these men here and those online. Help them to represent you well, to be energetically and forcefully. Uh, be your, your ambassadors of your grace and faith in Christ's name we pray. Amen.